Lord, we just stop and acknowledge you. We need you and we need your Holy Spirit to guide what I say, to guide what we hear. We want truth and we want to live in light of the truth. Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be working towards those ends, that we would see and know the truth from your word, that you would illuminate your word, that we would be transformed by it. Especially in this Advent season, Lord, we want to behold that precious and beautiful and powerful Savior that came in the form of a baby. In Jesus' name, amen. Any uh, mathematicians or geometric giants or algebra aficionados in the house? See, I think you think I'm going to make you come up and do a math problem because nobody's raising their hands. Uh, Simply, anybody good at math, I'm not going to have you come up and do a problem. Like, you're wired that way. I see a few. It's not me. Um, I never was that guy. doesn't mean I was bad at math. I always passed my arithmetic-style classes um, with moderate ease, uh, but it, those were the types of classes for me that I'm like, I need, I got to get through this because it, it wasn't a joy for me. And for people who like, like numbers, thank God for people like Chris, our director of our finance department at our church, who crunches numbers all the time and loves it. And I just want to like give her pies because of that. Um, thank God for people who are wired that way. I, I am not. Uh, but there are some terms that I want to briefly bring back up to our memory that maybe you use on a regular basis from the yesteryear of our uh, education. These two terms are geometric. They are parallel and perpendicular. Parallel and perpendicular. Now, most of you would hear those terms and know exactly what they mean. Parallel being two lines that are running along the same path at the same distance that never intersect. It's like train tracks. They, they're always the same distance apart, going in the same direction. And then perpendicular is different. It's instead of them running parallel, their 90-degree angle offset from the other, there's deviation. There's a different direction of the line. We're in our Advent series right now, and Last week, we looked at Matthew's account of the advent of Christ. The week before that, we looked at the Gospel of John and his account of the advent of Christ. Go ahead and turn to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 1, as we look at Luke's account of the advent of Christ. In the opening chapters of Luke's Gospel, Luke is simultaneously drawing parallel lines and perpendicular lines. He's doing so by accounting the birth of John the Baptist and accounting the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. And what you might be familiar with from the reading of these passages year after year is a few of these dynamics that maybe you haven't noticed the way in which Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke, is capturing, intentionally paralleling John and Jesus, but also doing so in a way where he's making them perpendicular and different from each other as well. For example, the the parallels. First, the birth of John is foretold. We're opening this gospel about Jesus Christ, and for some strange reason, Luke starts with talking about the birth of John the Baptist. Yet then, you see right after that, he talks about the birth of Jesus Christ and how it was foretold. Then after that, we see the two mothers, Elizabeth, the mother of John, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, We see them get together where we see John and Jesus' paths intersecting, showing the way in which their, their lives, their mission, their purpose 
also were parallel and intersect. Then we see the birth and growth of John narrated. And then we see the birth and growth of Jesus narrated. Let's go ahead and start in Luke chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. They were elderly. Verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. That doesn't mean he was chosen by a man named Lot who said, Zechariah, it's your turn. They would cast lots. It's almost like drawing straws or drawing names out of a hat. He was chosen by lot casting to go in and minister in the most holy place in the temple. Verse 11 or verse 10, and the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. He's saying, This is not possible. We're too old for that. Verse 19. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Now, imagine just for a moment, let's pause there. What verse are we on so I can come back to it? We'll pick up at verse 20. Just for a moment, imagine you are called or chosen by lot to go into the holy place in the tabernacle or in the temple to offer incense, burn incense in the hour of incense as everyone's praying and worshiping. And you go in, and standing by the table of incense, you see an angel. And as much as we're familiar with these stories and these dynamics to where we think, why would someone be afraid? If you were there, you would have been afraid. If an angel appeared right before you, right next to you right now, chances are that we would be just like everyone else in the Bible who would have a degree of fear to what we were seeing, something unfamiliar, something supernatural, And Zechariah, like everyone else in the Bible who sees an angel, is afraid. Gabriel says to him, don't be afraid. I've got good news for you. And he tells him the great news. Hey, you're going to have a son. 
And that son is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He will draw the hearts of the fathers to the children and vice versa. And he will make way or prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And Zechariah says, "Uh, how's that going to happen? I'm old and so is my wife. And then Gabriel responds to you by saying, I am Gabriel. Now, whether or not there was a way for him to have an understanding of that name or the implications of Gabriel's role, who knows? But then he says this, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I have been sent with this message. If Zachariah's knees stopped knocking when he said, don't be afraid, they probably just started knocking again. Because he said, I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, meaning that's where I'm at all the time. And he sent me to share this message with you. Let's pick back up in verse 20 again. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, gesturing, and remained mute. And when when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Why, what does that mean? Why would Elizabeth say that? In biblical days, uh, if you were barren, more often than not, the speculation and or assumption was that it was due, that it was reproach because of your sin. That God would not grant um, fertility because of some sin or some issue in your life. And that was the common perspective in that day. And so when Elizabeth says that you've removed my reproach among the people, she's saying people are going to stop thinking that about me now. Now, the angel, just to recap bullet points here, the angel Gabriel visits Zechariah in the temple to tell him, your wife is going to have a son, call him John. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. Before he's even born, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Also, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He said he will be great before the Lord, and he's going to turn the hearts of many of the children of Israel back to their God. And and man, if you're dad, if you're the parent, and an angel's telling you this about your child, like if an angel appeared to you in the delivery room, it might rush up the delivery a little bit. Like, whoa, But if an angel appears in the delivery room and tells you your child will be great before the Lord, man, you're going to be overjoyed. That's the desire of all of us, right? That our children would love the Lord and serve him and worship him and follow him. And this angel Gabriel tells Zechariah, your son is going to be great before the Lord and he will draw the hearts of many of the children of Israel back to their God. Then one step further, he says this, he will go before the Lord in the spirit of and power of Elijah to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. 
See, in that moment in the temple, Gabriel brings Zechariah three earth-shatteringly joyful realizations. Three things that would shatter his earth and fill him with joy. In fact, Zechariah says, you're going to be full of joy. You're going to be happy about this. Number one, (laughs) your elderly self and your elderly barren wife are going to finally have a son. Man, just imagine for a moment what that's got to feel like. I don't know all of your story and struggles that you might have had. I know plenty of people personally who have had fertility struggles, some family, some uh, of my dearest best friends, people who I've uh, helped raise funds for their adoptions because they couldn't have children for whatever reason and for whatever purpose. And how emotional and challenging and difficult that is and how exciting it is to finally get the news of conception and, of course, to bring a child into the world. All the more, if you were an ancient Eastern Jew, not a modern Western American, if, as if the desire to have your own child is not only enough, the cultural norms and expectations and drives and desires to bear a son that would carry on the lineage, carry on the family name, carry on the reputation of the name uh, uh, of the family that would receive the inheritance, that would be the firstborn, all of those things, they had so much more weight on those things than you and I do. So at the news, you're finally going to have a son. Man, Zachariah would be elated. Secondly, the other earth-shattering joyful realization was not only were they going to have a son, but their son was going to be the one to fulfill Old Testament, for us Old Testament, fulfill Israel's prophecies about a prophet coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, a forerunner who would prepare the way for the Lord. If you went to Malachi chapter 3 or Malachi chapter 4, remembering Malachi was the last prophet Before the 400 years of silence, Malachi was the last prophet who spoke uh, prophetically in the Old Testament about the things that would come. And then for 400 years in God's providence, he went radio silent. No prophets, no prophecies, no words spoken to the people until the arrival of the next prophet, a man named John the Baptist, who we're talking about right now. Now, mind you, If we went to Malachi chapter 3, we can really quick. Don't turn there for time's sake. I'm just going to read Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. I I forgot to put it in the slides, but Malachi 4, 5, and 6. This is literally the last prophet or last prophecy in the, in the Old Testament. Malachi 4, 5, and 6 says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day the Lord comes. And now Gabriel's standing here saying that exact same, he's quoting Malachi to Zechariah saying, This is your son. Not a literal manifestation of Elijah, but coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, if you are Zechariah, not only a Jew, but a priest, a faithful, godly man, and an angel appears to you and says, hey, you're going to have a son. 
And hey, also that son is going to be the guy that Malachi was talking about who would prepare the way as a forerunner, preparing the way for the coming of the Lord all the more. You'd be elated, shocked, dumbfounded, full of joy. As amazing, as confounding, as joy-creating as those two announcements would be, they are incalculably, why do I put big words like that in my notes? <laughs> incalculably, I should have put infinitely, infinitely lesser than the announcement or the realization that comes following this. Realizing, man, we're finally going to have a son. Man, he's going to be the forerunner. The forerunner making way for the Lord to come, the Messiah to come. As great as the first two realizations are, the greater realization is that the Messiah is on his way. If the forerunner is here, who was foretold to come in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way for the Lord, that means the Lord is coming. Let's continue reading in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, because we read about the birth of John, the Baptist being foretold. Now we're going to read about the birth of Jesus being foretold. Verse 26, in the sixth month, meaning of Elizabeth's pregnancy, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Look, her response is the same. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Your translation might say, I've never known a man. Verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Gabriel, at her rebuttal, when she says, uh, how can this be? I, I'm a virgin. We all know the stork doesn't really bring the baby. 
how's this going to happen? And Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and he will overshadow you. And therefore, the child that will be within you will be called the Son of God. And to just drive further home any doubt or unbelief or to answer any doubt or unbelief that she might still have, she sa- he says, by the way, your family member, your extended family member, Elizabeth, who Mary would know and go, she's old. <laughs> she has conceived in her old age and is now at the sixth month. Nothing is impossible for God, like conceiving a baby within a virgin by the Holy Spirit of God. Gabriel tells Zechariah first, your son will be the fulfillment of Malachi 3 and 4, the coming of Elijah. Gabriel, the same guy, same angel, then goes to Mary as messenger and says, your son will be the fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7, the coming of the king, the son of David. Did you notice the few times in there that the house of David or son of David was mentioned? If you missed last week's message, please go back online and watch it where we, we see how much Matthew is, is zooming into the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and also of the Davidic covenant. And the significance of the Davidic covenant is this is a covenant promise that God made to to Israel and to David that God would have a king on the throne of David forever as an everlasting covenant. And the angel Gabriel's telling Mary right now, your son Jesus who will be conceived by the Holy Spirit, will be the son of God, son of David, fulfilling and being that king who will rule and reign forever. Now, I want you to notice the plethora of parallels here, coming back to the parallel concept, the parallels in these two accounts and why Luke is meticulously detailing these scenarios. Number one, both John and Jesus are born to godly Jewish parents. Both Zechariah and Mary are visited by the angel Gabriel. Both respond to Gabriel's appearance with fear and then are told not to be afraid. Both Elizabeth and Mary experience miraculous conceptions involving the Holy Spirit and outward signs. Notice Elizabeth conceives miraculously in her old age John, who would be John the Baptist, and he is filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. Then beyond that, or on the other side, the other parallel track, Jesus is conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit, miraculously. Both are told of the prophetic and redemptive significance of their child to come. One is the forerunner of the Messiah, one is the Messiah. Both at first disbelieve the good news message of Gabriel and provide rebuttals. That's not going to happen because we're old. That's not going to happen because I'm a virgin. Both then believe and offer praise to God. The conclusion of that scenario or the conversation with Mary where Gabriel says, nothing is impossible, nothing is too difficult for God. 
Now, although Luke is intentionally capturing and highlighting the parallels between Jesus and John the Baptist to show that there is meaning and significance in redemptive history to both of their births, one being the forerunner to come before him and say, Get ready because the kingdom is at hand. John going around saying, repent for the kingdom is here. The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is now. Repent and turn away from your sins. The king is coming. Then the king, Jesus Christ, does come. And although Luke is capturing these parallels, there's all, he is also at the same time drawing perpendicular lines to show that although they're parallel, they are not parallel. We see Luke also capture details that would show that Jesus is greater and not just a little bit greater. Number one, we have the barren womb versus the virgin womb. Barren wombs being opened are miraculous in their own right. We see them, though, accounted already multiple times in Scripture with Sarah and Rachel and Rebecca and Hannah. There were several women in the Old Testament who were barren, and God miraculously opened their wombs, even especially Sarah in her old age. But never before and never again had there or would there be a virgin womb that was opened and that gave birth Jesus is greater than John, the one who came before him. Secondly, we see that John, meaning when they said you'll name the boy John, John means God is gracious. What a beautiful name. If your name's John, that's a good name. Jesus means God is salvation or Yahweh saves. Beautiful. Thirdly, whereas John will be, as Gabriel told Zechariah, John will be great before the Lord. And although Gabriel did tell Mary he will be great before the Lord, talking about Jesus, or great, uh, that he will be great in God, further, not only would he be great before the Lord, Jesus would actually be the Lord. Whereas John is the one who would go before the Lord and prepare the way for the Lord and he would be great before the Lord, Jesus comes in as the Lord. Whereas John would come in the spirit of Elijah and the power of Elijah and go before the Lord their God preparing a way for him, Jesus comes as the Lord their God, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And although it's miraculous and spectacular and amazing and mind-boggling, all these details around the birth of John the Baptist, they pale in comparison to the details of the birth of Jesus Christ the Messiah. So although there were significant similarities between the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist and the foretelling of the birth of Jesus Christ, there are significant differences in that one is captured as unquestionably greater than the other. In case anybody is sitting here going, wow, John, what a guy. John goes, no, actually, the guy who's coming after me is the guy. In fact, there are times wherein people are coming up to John the Baptist in the New Testament, and they're saying, John, man, don't you realize 
that some of your disciples are leaving you to go follow this guy, Jesus? And John's like, yep, that's what's supposed to happen. He must increase, I must decrease. I'm baptizing you in water, but there's a guy who's coming after me who's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit who is greater than me to the degree that I'm not even worthy to stoop down and do the strap of his sandal. John understood the gap, the chasm of even though Jesus himself that said of all the men born of women, there won't none greater than John the Baptist, yet except there was one greater than John the Baptist, his name Jesus Christ. Let's look now at the convergence of these two stories in Luke 1, 39 through 44. In those days, Mary rose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now, there's just a couple things. I just want to pause really quick and and highlight here. Um, First and foremost, I just can't reconcile in my mind the concept, and this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it's one that's maybe worth taking a couple steps down. I just can't reconcile in my mind the concept of being biblical and Christian and seeing a baby in the womb as merely a clump of cells. I think it's an unbiblical view to not see the response of the baby John the Baptist in his mother's womb who hears, or uh, Elizabeth hears Mary's voice, the mother of Jesus, and the baby in the womb did what? Didn't only leap. There's three words in mind, leapt for, leapt for joy. That's an emotion, that's a a feeling that a person has. And we can go to Psalm 139 and we can see where we are intricately woven together and formed in our mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully made. But this is a, a real clear picture of the personhood of the baby in the womb. I believe that life begins at conception. Okay. Another thing I'd like to point out there is, is that Mary, upon hearing, when the baby leaped for joy, I'm sorry, not Mary, Elizabeth, says that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the second volume, these two books that go together, Luke and Acts. What we call the book of Acts, it's the Acts of the Apostles. These are two books that are two volumes that Luke wrote together to send to his friend Theophilus to convince him of the veracity of the Christian faith that Jesus is the Messiah. And in both of these volumes, when he employed the term filled with the Holy Spirit, the same or similar thing was happening every time. Every single time when he said filled with the Holy Spirit, someone was empowered by the Holy Spirit to affirm 
the Christhood or the divinity, the messianic role of Jesus Christ. This is what was happening with the baby leaping in the womb because what we see Elizabeth here as well affirming the lordship of the baby in the womb. If we go to the book of Acts, we'll see in Acts chapter two is where the Holy Spirit comes in and fills all the people with the spirit of God, all the believers. And then after that, you'll see Peter standing before a massive crowd of people. And in that moment, it says, and Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he began preaching, affirming and testifying to the savior that is Jesus Christ at least in Luke's accounts. That's what this word is employed as. Now, I wish I had time to stop and zoom in to the birth and growth of John the Baptist, but we don't have time. We're gonna jump ahead to Luke chapter two, verse one, the birth of Jesus Christ. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear, just like you and I would have been. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. If you are an underliner or a highlighter, what a line right there. This is good news of great joy for all people. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Pause for just a moment. We hear these stories every year and it's really easy for us to read that and not put ourselves in those shoes. Can you for just a moment imagine what it would be like to be out on the countryside in the nighttime, seeing the clear clear sky and the stars, no light pollution like all the uh, artificial lights that we have nowadays that kind of cloud up the sky and the stars like this night, and all of a sudden, an angel appears, and you're terrified just like every other person that sees an angel in the Bible, and he says, don't be afraid, here's good news. There is a baby born, Christ the Savior, the Lord. In Bethlehem, you're gonna find him wrapped in clothes. And then beyond that, if that wasn't enough, all of a sudden, out of, out of nowhere, a, a massive, angelic, heavenly host choir appears and starts singing the praises and glory of God. What would that feel like? What would you do? What would it be, what, if we got out of service today and we walked outside and there was a heavenly angelic choir floating above the parking lot singing the glories of God, would you be like, oh, that's neat? 
Anyways, football game kicks off and I got to go get lunch. How sad it is, how easy it is for us to disconnect our hearts from what we read because we've read it so many times. This is incredible. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger and an annoying little boy playing drums. <laughs> Just kidding. That's a lame joke. I wish I made it up. I saw a meme. And when they saw it, meaning the baby, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. We would respond the same way the shepherds did. In fact, as we look at these details, look at these stories, our appropriate response, even though we're reading, not witnessing, we're reading accounts of true things, that the appropriate response for us today, sometimes if you're sitting and you're listening to the sermon and you're going, yeah, but what do I do? I, I hear the things you're teaching and, and I believe, but like, what do I do? How do I apply that? Stephen, would you give me more application points? Our application point today is the same as the shepherd's. That upon hearing the good news, that we would long to go and behold. And although there's not a, a manger that we can go to today and see the Christ child sitting there, there is a place where we can go and behold the baby in God's word. That we would respond to the message the same way. That we would long to see and know the truth and believe the truth. And upon seeing and experiencing and believing the truth, that we would go away the same way that the shepherds did. Singing and praising and glorifying God. Can you think for a moment that they would have left that place and gone, that was cool. Let's tell no one. No. They would have witnessed and experienced something that changed their lives for the rest of their lives. Go tell it on the mountain. You don't even need that command, that encouragement. When you've seen and beheld and believe, you respond and go, I saw and I heard and I believe. Luke opened his gospel account by highlighting how John comes in the spirit and power of Elijah, fulfilling Malachi's and Moses' prophecies, fulfilling the last prophecy of the New Testament. And John would be the greatest among men since Moses, but only for a few months until the truly greatest man would come, the, the man who would later appear to a different John in a vision in what we call the book of Revelation where he would say to him, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am the first and the last. I am he who was and is and is to come forevermore. God in the flesh 
humbling himself, stepping off of his throne to come into a baby, to come into a womb that he formed, to come into a world that he created, to come into a manger that was made out of materials that he caused to exist. Jesus, the first and the last, he was the first and the last to not open a barren womb, but a virgin womb. He was the first and the last to have been born without sin, lived without sin, and died without sin, making him qualified to be the sacrificial lamb that the law required without any spot, without any blemish, to where this same John the Baptist that we're talking about could be baptizing people in the wilderness, see Jesus approaching and saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was the first and the last to have been born as the Son of God. Jesus was the first and the last to have fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies. Jesus was the first and the last to have created the earth he would be born into. Jesus was the first and the last to have been capable and willing to bear your sin and my sin in his body on the cross. Despite him being born of the most humble circumstances in a manger, not in a crib, among barn animals, not among royalty and festive celebrations, not in a palace, in the humble town of Bethlehem, not in the capital city of Jerusalem or in the Roman capital of Rome, not born into a wealthy family of rapport, but born into a poor household of Mary and Joseph, as is affirmed by the sacrifices they offered when he was circumcised, they offered the Levitical poor family sacrifices. His arrival wasn't observed or celebrated by the elites, rather by the lowest class, shepherds. A baby who would grow up not as the warlord that everyone was looking for, the conquering king, not someone who would go and conquer armies like the armies of Xerxes or Alexander the Great or the Roman Horde or Genghis Khan's Mongol army or Napoleon's Grande Armée or even the modern American military. All of these rulers, all of these powers, all of these kings and kingdoms and presidents, all of these and their Images of projectable power are beneath the feet of this little baby boy. This baby born near the donkey, near the steer, near the lamb, who would grow up to become a carpenter and shape wood into tables and chairs and whatever else. Not only would he shape wood, this same carpenter is the one who created the tree that would be cut down and then shaped into a cross that he would then willingly go to and lay his life down for you and for me. That the God of the universe would humble himself to that degree 
showing the greatest love that had ever been known to save the greatest rebels ever. To call them into the family of God. And the beauty and majesty and the awe and wonder of all of this is that the birth and the life of Jesus Christ is not only a parallel and perpendicular to John, but it's parallel and perpendicular to you and me. The last verse I'm going to read this morning as we wrap up is Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, where it says this, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast to the faith we confess in Jesus Christ. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus is parallel to us in that he came born of a man or born of a woman, lived life as a human so that he could be our substitute, so that he could be the sacrifice in our place. But that parallel turns into perpendicular because even though he came and lived a human life just like you and me, he is different in that he never sinned even though he was tempted like you and me. And the beauty of it all, I didn't even think of this until right now. I didn't say this in first sermon, is that these parallel lines, when you bring them perpendicular, you get a cross. And if 2,000 years ago, you and I would have been in that scene, seeing the manger and the baby lying there, we might have only been able to see a baby and some animals and the family, perhaps angels. But what would have been present spiritually would be the cross in the background that he would be going to showing that this was all necessary. Good news of great joy for all people. And if this is good news for you, which it is if you see it and believe it, and if it causes great joy in you, which it should if you see it and if you believe it, will cause you to go out singing the praises and glory of God to all people if you see it and believe it. It all begins with us beholding Jesus Christ. And when we behold him, we adore him. Would you stand this morning as we behold and adore the Savior?